Welcome to the official podcast of the Love Times 2 Project. Change the culture and the politics will follow. Here is your host, Mike Victor. Well, hello and welcome to the Love Times 2 Podcast. My name is Jordan Wooten and I serve on the board of the Love Times 2 Project. And I'm pleased to host our conversation today with Chelsea Sobolik. Chelsea is the Director of Public Policy for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. Before serving at the ERLC, Chelsea worked on Capitol Hill on a number of issues, including pro-life policies, domestic and international religious freedom, adoption, and foster care issues. Chelsea is also, also an author. Uh, she wrote Longing for Motherhood, Holding on to Hope in the Midst of Childless- Childlessness, excuse me. and she's been published in a number of outlets, including The Wall Street Journal, USA Today, the Gospel Coalition, and Christianity Today, among others. And she's currently in the process of writing another book, this one on the topic of women and work. And before we get out of here, I'll be sure and let her give a plug uh, for the work that she's doing there. Uh, so with that, let me welcome Chelsea to the show. Chelsea, thanks for coming on the podcast. Welcome. Well, Jordan, thank you so much for having me. This is going to be uh, really fun. I think so, too. And and I guess as a way of kind of getting going here, uh, I would love to have you, uh, in addition, you know, to the to the bio that I just shared, um, just have you introduce yourself to the listeners. So and I'll kind of frame it this way. So you and I, we, we've worked together some over the last couple of years. So I know a bit about your story um, and knowing what I do. Uh, I'd love to hear you weave together these things for the listeners. So talk about your experience of, of having been adopted, your experience following Jesus. When did you come to faith? And then how have those things kind of combined to inform the work that you're doing now? Well, that is a great question, and um, I will do my best to, to answer this uh, as succinctly as possible. But um, so my my parents, my story starts before I was born, um, but my my parents um, were missionaries in Western Africa for a couple of years before they adopted uh, six children. My father's an architect, and they physically helped build churches in, in West Africa. When my parents got married, they were not Christians and did not want children and uh, came to saving faith in their early 20s, and the Lord changed their hearts, and they, they desired a family tried, couldn't have children. They were in the process of a domestic adoption um, here in the U.S. And um, we're watching, one night we're watching a 2020 documentary on Eastern Europe and um, the fall of the Iron Curtain in Eastern Europe. And this, this documentary was specifically focused on the Romanian orphans. And they were watching this and the Lord pricked their hearts and um, they decided to, to adopt internationally and adoption, you know, 30 plus years ago was international adoption uh, was much different than it is today. So, or they were able to very quickly go through the process um, and and head to Romania. And uh, they adopted myself and a, a little boy. We're not blood related. We're actually 11 days apart, which is super fun. We were essentially raised as twins. So I, um, I, one of the, the things that I'm, I'm very grateful for, um, I was very little when I was adopted, so I was never placed into an orphanage. And then my parents desired to to adopt more children, and Romania had actually closed its doors to, to foreign adoption. So I have four adopted siblings from Russia, and then I also have an adopted cousin from Ukraine. So everything that's going on right now in that part of the world is definitely near and dear to our family. Um, but I, I grew up, you know, thinking adoption was normal because all of my siblings were adopted, and I had close friends growing up uh, who were also adopted. And my, my family was very open with, with our stories and 
um, with our background. My parents raised us in a, a very strong Christian home. So I, you know, from a very young age, I'm the oldest girl um, and kind of very quickly adopted kind of the, the second parent mentality out of six kids. Uh, so, so growing up, I was always kind of the goody two shoes and knew, you know, how my good behavior would get me what I wanted. And, um, it wasn't until I was 18. Um, so I considered myself a Christian for a long time, but when I was 18, and this ties into the book I wrote and, and kind of how I, how, how my faith became real in my own. Um, I found out that I was born with a somewhat rare medical condition that prevents me from having children. And I was a freshman at college. Most people, when they walk through some type of infertility or childlessness, do so in the context of marriage. And I was uh, very single, and it's, it really did turn my world upside down. There were many long uh, days and nights of wrestling with the Lord through through suffering. For the first time in my life, I, I really examined what it meant to follow Christ and to take up your cross and follow Him, and to follow Him in a broken world where, uh, where, to be frank, we don't always always get all the desires of our heart met on this side of eternity. But um, through that time, and it was a period of of months and months, um, I, I came to see the gospel for for what it was, and um, you know, a precious uh, precious reality, and that um, you know, Christ Christ promises to redeem all sorrow. Um, but in the meantime, um, we are living in a fallen and broken world. Um, so, so during that time, um, I, I think that's when my faith really became my own. All that to say, so my, my husband and I are actually in our own adoption process. We're adopting from India right now. So we're, we're very excited. And um, to answer the, the last part of your, your question, how has this, all these experiences shaped me vocationally? You know, I think one of the great desires the Lord has placed on my heart and burdens He's placed on my heart is to work on behalf of vulnerable people and people who don't have a voice. And this has played out in many different ways in my my professional life. But that's a a big desire of my heart is refugees or orphans and, or kiddos in foster care. Most of these people don't have well-funded lobbyists on K Street and um, and they need people who are who are being their voice and their advocate. So that was a very long answer to, to your short question. No, that's that's good. And, and it's a good lead into um, to, to where we're going next. So so you serve at the ERLC. I, I would um, I, w- I would love to have you just kind of tell us generally about the work that you all do there. Uh, what, what are some of the primary issues that you and your team focus on? And then uh, with respect to the, the issue of life and abortion, which we'll talk a bit more about, um, what, what are the team's main points of emphasis there? Absolutely. So I run ERLC's Washington, D.C. office. We're headquartered in Nashville, but we have a a D.C. office where uh, we are focused on public policy and we're focused on advocating before Congress, uh, the administration and with the courts. So our work kind of falls into 
five main buckets, issues of human dignity, issues of marriage and family, justice issues, uh, religious freedom issues, and uh, international issues. So kind of slotted within each one of those buckets are a myriad of different uh, different issues we work on um, day to day. But those are kind of the five main areas of work that we focus on. And, you know, no day looks the same, but kind of a, a you know, we're always advocating um, and always daily in communication with, with Capitol Hill, um, advancing and advocating for good policy and helping stave off harmful policy. Um, and, and certainly there's overlap in, in some of those those five issues. And we also examine each issue that we work on um, in light of scripture and in light of the SVC resolutions that pass uh, every year. And we we approach each issue slightly differently. So, um, for example, the issue of abortion. Scripture is very clear on life, when life begins, how we should protect uh, life, especially vulnerable preborn children. So we feel very confident and comfortable um, speaking extraordinarily clear on, on that issue. But for example, we work on um, some immigration issues and the Bible does not tell us what our immigration policy should be. <laughs> so uh, when the Bible is not clear, we stay pretty high level and we'll speak, but the Bible does tell us how we should think about our immigrant neighbor and speak about immigrants and, and refugees and whatnot. So we'll stay pretty high level with, with issues like that. But uh, on the issue of, of life and abortion, um, and I think we'll get into this, but one of the big things that we're, we're working on right now, um, preparing for, uh, the, the release of the opinion in a once in a generation, um, case for, for the pro-life movement. Um, and we're, we're doing that by equipping, uh, pastors, um, and, and making sure that they have the, the resources they need. Um, something we're also very aware of in our advocacy and in communicating publicly is that we care, of course, we care about um, saving and protecting the the vulnerable uh, unborn child, but we also care about uh, that child's mother, and we want to make sure that uh, we are loving and caring for both the child and the mother. That's great, and 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 on that topic, and, and you you delved into it a bit. So uh, the, the once in a generation uh, case that you mentioned is is a case out of Mississippi, the Dobbs court case. Um, a, a lot of people, there's a lot of buzz, of course, uh, within pro life circles, and a lot of people are speculating that that we may even be on the cusp of of seeing Roe versus Wade overturned, depending upon how how that uh, that course is decided. So, can you give a brief overview of Dobbs, and then explain why is it that people are, are thinking, suggesting that that this could lead to to the overturning of Roe. So in December, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in a case entitled Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, or the Dobbs case for short. So the Dobbs case is a lawsuit challenging Mississippi's 15-week limit on elective abortions. So in 2018, Mississippi passed a law that replaces the viability standard created uh, in Casey, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, with a limit on abortions um, after 15 weeks of pregnancy, with a few small exceptions. Uh, not surprisingly, the law was challenged and ultimately made its way uh, up to the Supreme Court. So I'm going to talk about the viability line for a minute, because 
this gets to why this particular case is so significant um, and why this case, um, more than any other case that the, the court has examined um, in years, is the case that could potentially overturn the precedents uh, set in, in Roe and Casey. So, uh, first, it's important to note that Mississippi and their, their litigation actually asked the court to overturn the precedents that were set in Roe and Casey. And the ERLC submitted a brief and, and made the same request to the court. Um, but the viability line, why is this so important to this case and to uh, Roe and Casey? Uh, 1973, when Roe v. Wade was decided, um, the monumental uh, case that that are created out of thin air, a constitutional right to abortion. Of course, as Christians and actual constitutionalists, we know that there is no constitutional right to abortion, but the justices created uh, what was known as a trimester framework for abortion rights. And then in um, the early 1990s, there was a case called Planned Parenthood versus Casey that threw out the trimester framework and created the viability standard. And so in Casey, the court said that before viability, states cannot place an undue burden on a woman's uh, quote right to right to an abortion. Mm. So when this viability line was created out of thin air, and uh, first pro- when it was first proposed in 1973, viability was around 28 weeks. But today it's around 21 weeks. Um, so so what is at the the core of of the Mississippi case is this viability line because they replaced the viability line with a 15 week limit on abortion. So well before the viability line. Um, so, so as our modern medicine gets, continues to improve, the viability line will just continue to move up further and further and further. So this case truly is a once in a generational opportunity for the court to overturn the precedents that are set in Roe and Case E. Let's assume for a moment, a minute that, that Roe is actually overturned. I mean, we get a favorable ruling in the Dobbs case, Roe, uh, by virtue of that, um, um, eventually, hypothetically, is overturned. What, what does that mean? Uh, and if that occurs, what, what do you think What do you think happens next? It's a great question. So there's kind of three, three outcomes that could happen uh, when we receive a decision. One, the court could do nothing, um, which is very highly unlikely. Second, the court could issue a more narrow ruling, like, moving the viability line or something similar. And and third, and what we're hopeful will happen is that the precedent set in Roe and Casey will be overturned. Um, so if if that happens, abortion will, the, the question of abortion and abortion laws will be sent back to the states. Um, an estimated, if that happens, an estimated uh, 26 states, including Mississippi, immediately would implement complete bans on abortion. An estimated 15 states and Washington, D.C. have enacted laws that would automatically keep uh, abortion legal if if Roe was overturned. And the rest of the states are somewhere in the middle. Just just this week when we're recording, uh, there have been several states that have passed uh, 15-week limits on abortion. You know, as, as we're getting closer and closer to a decision in Dobbs, you know, s- states are, are, are kind of scrambling to, to pass laws to either protect life or protect what they see as um, abortion rights. In a recent article, you you, you wrote um, sort of in preparation um, for for Roe potentially being overturned and, and this issue being sent to the states. Uh, you wrote an article that um, that talked about how we can make our states more pro life. So can can you share some of the ideas that you listed in that article? 
Absolutely. So one of the things, you know, for folks listening to be aware of is if abortion is sent back to the states, if you live in Texas, that will look very different than if you live in, say, California, where, um, you know, places like California um, will become kind of an abortion destination where where people will travel to to those places for abortion. So a couple of things to you know, it, it would number one be helpful uh, to kind of familiarize yourself with what your current state's uh, laws are regarding abortion. And shameless plug, if you go to ERLC.com slash Dobbs, we have a map um, that will will help you get started on that. Um, and number two, uh, depending on on where you live, what your current state's laws are, there's kind of a number of, of steps you could take, um, such as um, helping helping your state work on on laws that that protect uh, vulnerable human life. Um, if you live in states that already have pretty robust uh, laws on the books, you could work on a state constitution. Uh, that, that protects life in the state's constitution. And then another incredibly important um, piece of this conversation, it, it is a sad reality that if um, if abortions are limited, which we're, we're thankful for, it protects life, um, but more children will be entering into the foster care system and they will be vulnerable in that way. So we need to be thinking now about how to, how to protect um children after they're born and you know be stepping up and caring for kiddos in foster care and be willing and ready to adopt or support uh foster and adoptive families there's dozens of ways people can get involved in in child welfare there's also laws that that folks who work on child welfare laws differ from state to state but um again you can kind of figure out what what that looks like in your state and and work from there yeah of course, what happens at the Supreme Court and, and the state level, um, obviously, is, is of great consequence. But, uh, you know, I, I don't know, many pro-life people uh, potentially may still feel kind of, you know, far removed from, from the work happening there at that level. It, it might seem like uh, an issue that's occurring out there as opposed to something that we can all be involved in locally. So, uh, as you, you know, you, you've begun to, to talk about this already, but what, what sorts of things can people be doing locally um, so maybe making maybe taking it from the state level even even more local. What what sorts of things everyday practices can can Christians be practicing now to advance the cause of life? I lo- I love this question so much. There are so many ways. Um, I'll start with advocacy and then move into to some other ways to get involved. Um, you know, I, I think sometimes there can be a misconception that to affect. Uh, affect good policy, you have to come to Washington, D.C. and and lobby Congress. And that is absolutely not true. Uh, Of course, federal policy and legislation matter, but um, state and local um, policies and ordinances matter incredibly, uh, matter so much because, um, you know, that's where you're governed locally. So, you know, get to know your your state legislators and uh your your local county commissioners and and befriend them and build relationships with them and uh you can certainly advocate at a at a local level um but then some other ways i'll say this before i get into some other ways not everyone is called to all things in all seasons so i would encourage uh listeners to kind of step back and, and give give these some 
some serious thought and prayer um, as to how the Lord is calling you in this season to get involved. Um, because how the Lord calls me might be very different from how the Lord calls you. And that is good and right. And we need, you know, we're the body of Christ. We need the hands and the feet and the eyes and we need all parts um, yeah. serving. Uh, so uh, to steal a phrase, I, I use this often, but to steal a phrase from Eugene Peterson, this work really is a long obedience in the same direction. And, mm. you know, this side of eternity, we will always live in a broken world. So there will always be, uh, ways that we can serve, but to highlight a couple, a couple more ways to serve, um, I, I find out where your local pregnancy resource center is. Uh, they always need volunteers everywhere. Every every center I've ever talked to uh, could use more volunteers too, uh, and I know they have dozens of ways you can volunteer locally. Um, one of the ways I serve here in Washington D.C. is uh, through the CASA program. CASA stands for Court Appointed Special Advocate. And my job is to get to know a kiddo or, or a sibling group in foster care and get to know them, their needs and desires and wishes, and then um, go to court. I'm not a lawyer, but uh, you don't have to be for this. And then go to court and get to be their voice in in court and get to, to advocate for, for that kiddo in foster care who doesn't have a voice for themselves. And, um, you know, I, I also would say to, um, you know, maybe you're a new parent and you don't have a lot of extra time right now. Uh, you could consider financially um, giving to a, a local ministry or ministry partner who's who's doing great work. Um, and, and then lastly, um, we can each hit our knees and, and be advocating and, and praying for um, for good laws to be passed for um, for the care and protection of vulnerable uh, babies and, and children and for, for families. So there's, you know, there's so many ways. Um, so I would, uh, ag- again, encourage you to, to kind of assess what's a- around you already and see how you can uh, get plugged in locally. Yeah. So um, to, to narrow the conversation even, even further, uh, when I, when I think of engaging locally, I, I can't help but think of the parable of the Good Samaritan um, and, and our call that Jesus places on us to be a neighbor to those that we encounter. Um, what what role would you say should hospitality and, and the act of being a neighbor play in our efforts on this issue? Mm, I love this question. Um, a huge, a huge part um, because you have, we have to know our neighbor, you know, and I think it's so easy, especially, um, you know, during the past couple of years with, with a global pandemic, it's so easy to kind of shut our door and be isolated. And, but as we're able, um, you know, I think it's, it's so important to welcome people into our home. Um, home is such a, a sacred and special place. Um, and there's something uh, so extraordinary about being invited into someone's home and sitting around a dinner table and getting to getting to know someone. Um, and it might be someone you, you may have lots of disagreements with or, um, or whatnot. And that's, that's good and healthy to, to break bread and have fellowship and to, um, to be willing to open up our homes and our hearts to people who may uh, look different than us think different than us, have made different life choices um, than us. Um, but 
I mean, at the at the foot of the cross, uh, we're we're all sinners, and God's grace is is covers um, covers us. So, I you know, I would I would encourage people to get to know their neighbor. Um, one of the things that um, is incredibly important to my husband and I is to um, regularly be opening up our home to um, not only people in our church to get to know our local body of of Christ better, but also um, to, to people who, who we know that don't know him and to, to break bread. And so I, I, I personally think it's extraordinarily important and it, it, it creates the space to have conversations that you can't always have a, a loud restaurant or, um, you know, at a coffee, you know, things like that. It really does set the, the stage and the tone for some more intentional, uh, deep conversations. Yeah. And, you know, you, you just hinted at this, so maybe maybe this question is a bit redundant, but but I think it's worth um, um, addressing again, just just because it's important. So I I, I think often about how how divided um, the the country is basically on on this issue, how um, how the divide is seems to be growing, how the talk around the issue is is hostile and and growing more so, and so um, you know. We can tend to be insular uh, and, and and therefore kind of rarely attempt to reach across the aisle, so to speak, and, and engage with people who, like you mentioned, maybe believe differently than we do. Um, it seems to me, though, but that that if we hope to gain ground, um, that that's something that'll be necessary. Uh, so, I guess in, in order to change the culture's views on on life and abortion. Uh, <laughs> Maybe it's kind of a leading question, but don't 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 we have to interact with our so-called opponents and, and build relationships with them, friendships even? Um, and and if so, I, I guess here's here's the question. It's not an easy one. How do we do that? Um, how, how do we kind of bridge the divide that seems to be growing? Man, such a good question. Um, before I attempt to give an answer, Jordan, I'll just say I have been so encouraged by by how you've how you've done this and modeled this and. Um, you know, anytime you write anything for ERLC, I, I read it because I, I so appreciate your your thoughtfulness and um, how you think through these issues. So, so thank you. Um, you know, I I have thought quite a lot about social media, um, and you know, any anyone that spends any amount of time on on Twitter, it is just polarizing and ugly and discouraging and you know if i do a quick scroll at 6 p.m as i'm headed home from the office it sets the tone for the rest of my my evening um and and i think it it kind of does for everyone um but you know so many people say social media isn't real life and and that's true to an extent but also the watching world is watching how we treat one another on social media and they're watching how we speak about these issues, especially ones that are pretty controversial. And, you know, I think there's a a way uh, to, to certainly um, speak the truth as Christians. We are, we are called to speak the truth about sexuality and gender and life and marriage. And and these, these issues, we are absolutely called to speak the truth. Um, But we're also called to do it in a way that, you know, if, if a vulnerable mom sees us, us talking about this issue, I want to be the one who speaks about these issues, whether it's on my Twitter account or, you know, 
out in public. Um, I want to be the one who's speaking about these issues in a way um, that makes her feel cared about and not ostracized. And I, I think we can do this in a way publicly that can um, we can speak truth in love without compromising truth, but also do it in a way that, that makes the, the watching world see Christ in us and see see that we're are loving people and um, calling people to to the good news of the gospel, um, a local level in, in the body of Christ. I think this is why serving serving your local community is so important because it um, it puts you in, in situations to interact with people again who are so different than you in so many ways. But um, you know whether it's you know local ministry partners at your your local church or local volunteer program, or even, you know, volunteering to be a counselor at a pregnancy resource center, you're interacting um, with people who, who don't uh, look, think, behave like you. And that's a good thing. And that, that sets us up to be able to engage in, in relationship with, with people who are different with us, than us and hopefully do so in a way that, that points and calls people to, to Christ. That's good. I think yeah, I think that's a good a good word to end on. And so as 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 we kind of land things here, um, uh, let me let me just ask a couple of closing questions. So one, how can listeners be praying for you and your team there at the ERLC? Well, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I I would ask for prayer. Uh, we are uh, still in an interim stage, so or period with the ERLC. So I would ask for prayer for our our search team as they're searching for the next president. Um, but then there is so much good work um, for the ERLC to be doing. I think we're doing it um, and, and speaking to places where we need to be speaking. You know, I, I, I would ask for, for prayer as we're engaging in the public square on these issues that hearts and minds uh, would be changed on on these issues, then more people would come to know, come into saving faith through through the work that we do here. And then if, uh, if listeners want to stay up to date on the work that you guys are doing, um, you, you, you mentioned the ERLC.com slash Dobbs site. Are, are there other ways, other areas or other places where they can, they can kind of follow along? Absolutely. So, uh, ERLC.com, we, we update daily with what is going on, how to, how Christians should think about, um, issues they're navigating every day from a, uh, a Christian, uh, Christian perspective, ethical perspective, uh, a scriptural perspective. Um, and, and then, uh, we have, um, uh, a newsletter called the weekly where people can get kind of a, a weekly <laughs> overview of, of what we're thinking about, speaking about working on every single week. Okay. Excellent. And then one final thing, Chelsea, can you give a plug for the book that you're working on? Yes. Yes. So I am writing a book on women and work. Uh, the title will probably change. So I, I won't say it, but I'm really excited. There's all, there's incredible resources on a Christian view of vocation and work and calling and, and all those topics, but there's, there's actually not that much, um, discussing Christian uh, women and work. So I'm, I'm writing the book I, I wish existed. Uh, mm-hmm. So it, it should release uh, in the fall of 2023. Okay, great. Well, we will be on the lookout for that. Um, it's been, Chelsea, it's been a great conversation. Thank you so much again for your time today. Thank you guys uh, at the ERLC for the work that you're doing. Um, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. So thanks. Thanks, Jordan. 
And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the official podcast of the Love Times 2 Project. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And never forget, change the culture and the politics will follow.